Donald Trump called him tough. Rush Limbaugh read one of his articles live on his radio show. Ann Coulter tweeted that article to her one and a half million followers and declared, every sentence is perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, former chief editor of the Jewish Press, Elliot Resnick. Welcome to the Elliot Resnick Show. With us today is Tamir Goodman, who became a sensation in the Orthodox Jewish world in 1999 when Sports Illustrated ran a story on the then 17-year-old, dubbing him the Jewish Jordan. That story included a full-page picture of Tamir in tefillin holding a sitter and informed readers that the University of Maryland, a top basketball college in the country, had offered Tamir a scholarship despite knowing that he wouldn't be able to play on Shabbos. ESPN subsequently ran a story on Tamir, as did 60 Minutes, Fox, CNN, and a whole bunch of others. Tamir, it's a real pleasure having you on the show today. After that story came out about you in 1999, you played for another year of high school and then accepted a scholarship to play at Towson University after the University of Maryland apparently reneged on its agreement to accommodate your Shabbos observance. Less than two years later, though, you were gone from Towson and moved to Israel, where you played professional basketball for a number of years before retiring at age 27 due to a series of injuries. Some people claim that you were never really that good since you didn't put up great numbers at Towson or in Israel. They essentially argue that Sports Illustrated, ESPN, and other media outlets exaggerated your talent because it made for a good story. I'm pretty sure that's not true because I went to the same Chabad high school in Pittsburgh that you did. I arrived the year you left and you were a legend in Pittsburgh. The Pittsburgh school did not have a basketball team, but it did sometimes play one game a year against Hillel, the local modern Orthodox school. The year before I arrived, in other words, the year that you were there, the Chabad High School, if I'm not mistaken, beat the modern Orthodox school by 40 points, and you personally scored something like 50 points. The following year, the year I arrived and you were gone, we lost to that same school by 10 or 15 points. So you were very good. In fact, you were the 25th highest ranking high school basketball player in the country in 1999. I remember we were very excited for you in Pittsburgh when that Sports Illustrated story came out. So what happened? How come you never became the all-star so many people thought you would become, not in America and not in Israel? Well, I think in 11th grade, I had a lot of success. I was playing for a coach that I love and who raised me in a very healthy basketball situation, I would say. My senior year, I had to transfer to a Christian school. They were Seventh-day Adventists. It was a predominantly African-American Christian school outside of Washington, D.C., but because they were Seventh-day Adventists, They didn't play on Chavez, so that's why I went there. That was a very high-ranking team, a very talented team. Actually, some of my teammates include Brian Wright, who is now the GM of the San Antonio Spurs, who just signed Juan Mignana the other night. He was my teammate on that team. He actually used to come to kosher restaurants with me in high school. And another one of my teammates, Tony Skin, is a Division I coach, was an Olympian as well. So I got to play at a very high level. Thank God I had a lot of success my senior year. I got invited to play at the Capital Classic All-Star Game. For the best players in America, I actually won the MVP of that game against the best players in America. Then I had to eventually play at Towson University, where I would not have to play on Chavez. It was a very big adjustment for me. And I actually had a lot of success my freshman year. I won the Coach's Award. A lot of people don't know that, but I won the Coach's Award as a freshman for best performance on and off the court. And they told me that they were going to build the team around me moving into my sophomore year. And the coach told me it just took him a year to realize, like, what my skill set was. And I ended up starting as a freshman. I had great games against Villanova, against Michigan, against some of the best teams in, in the world, you know, college basketball teams in the world as a freshman. 
I had a double double as a freshman. I had one game with over, I think, 15 points and 10 assists. I was like, you know, winning the coach's award as a freshman is not something that's very easy. And um, I felt like I had a very good freshman year. I did exactly what the coach asked of me. I led our team in assists. I think I broke the free throw shooting record in a game as a freshman in Division One. I. I earned my spot as a starter. You know, I beat out the people that were in front of me that were older than me. So, you know, I, I also went from barely passing my SATs to making it to Dean's list as a freshman. So I, I don't think I had a bad freshman year. I think I had a very impressive freshman. I won many awards on and off the court. But unfortunately, right after the season was over, a very bad thing happened to me, which is my coach got fired. And that was a very bad thing because the entire staff got fired, which meant that everyone who helped me for Shabbos is now gone. And at 18 years old, having to switch your senior year, finally finding a home after everything that happened at Maryland and the coach who you love and helped you is now gone. It's a very, uh, very hard thing to go through, especially after they told you they were going to build a team around you going into your sophomore year. And you finally, finally are doing the impossible, you know, whoever thought you could play division one without playing on Chavez on a full scholarship. I mean, I was doing something impossible. And my coach warned me that the new coach that they hired was not going to accommodate me and that I should transfer. And I had very good options, but I didn't listen to him because I felt like the school had accommodated me and it would be rude for me to leave. But my coach was right. And the new coach came in and he was very, very, um, very negative, very abusive, very scary from day one. And I tried to overcome it as much as an 18 year old could. I called meetings with him. He showed up an hour and a half late. I would go home every day in a tape recorder and say the terrible things that were happening at practice. Things were purposely being scheduled on Shabbos. It was just getting worse and worse and worse by the day. So I called a, a meeting with the athletic director. The athletic director promised me after that meeting that everything was going to be fine. And unfortunately, he was incorrect because very soon after that, the new coach assaulted me in the locker room very badly. Thank God the police just happened to be there a little bit too late. They just heard the noise and the screaming and everything. And by the time they got there, it had already taken place. They took me to the police station and I never played another game of college basketball again in my life. Uh, I was absolutely destroyed mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. I, I couldn't imagine how after I'd everything I'd been through and I finally got to that point, somebody could take that away from me. I could not wrap my head around that. So I was broken. Somehow I got the courage to pick myself up. I felt like Hashem brought me to this world to play basketball. And if I quit basketball, I'm not fulfilling my mission. And that's the only reason I got myself back in shape. I got the phone call from Maccabi Tel Aviv in Israel and coach David Blatt, who ended up coaching the Cleveland Cavaliers and LeBron James. He read about what happened and he said, what do you think about coming to Israel? I said, I'd love to. He's like, well, I know what happened and you're not exactly haven't played in a while. So I won't, before I come to America to try you out, go to Princeton. And if they tell me you're worth it, I'm going to come to America. So I trained with Princeton at Princeton University for a day. and I did very well and coach called Coach Blatt and said, it's worth it for you to come to America to see this kid play. So I had a one-on-one -on -one tryout at Chelsea Piers in New York with Coach David Blatt, who probably going to go down as one of the most successful coaches ever in European, you know, Israeli, like he's just world renowned, very well respected. And after a one hour, one hour tryout with him, one-on-one, -on -one, signed a three-year contract to play for Maccabi Tel Aviv. I came over here to Israel and I got traded very quickly, which is a very hard thing to go through. Why did he trade you if he recruited you? 
it was the year that I don't know if you know who Candace Parker is. Candace on TNT, she speaks, sits next to Shaq and Barkley okay. on NBA <laughs> TV. Yeah, so her brother was on the team, Anthony Parker, who ended up being a long, long time NBA player. Macy Obaston, who played at Michigan, then went to the NBA, was on that team. And Sarun Stesikavichis, who also ended up playing in the NBA for the Indiana Pacers, was also on that team. So I had three NBA players in front of me. I was like, <laughs> it was, it ended up, they ended up winning the European Championship and they ended up probably going down as one of the greatest teams of all time. And I was just like a young rookie. So, okay. so I got traded. And I did pretty good at the new team. After everything I've been through, I was I was doing pretty good. So much so that I got invited in my rookie year to the All Star Professional All Star Break Dunk Contest. And I missed all three dunks in the dunk contest. Dunks that I never missed in my life since high school. And um, the Jerusalem Post was there covering it. And I remember the reporter coming to my house, and I was like just being so embarrassed that I missed dunks that I never missed in my life. I couldn't believe I did that. And I said the next morning, I got to get even stronger and better, even though I was like the most dedicated athlete. I didn't realize it. The reason that I missed all three dunks was because my knee was already destroyed. And I was just on so much adrenaline and so much pushing forward always that when I trained even more, I created a tremendous um, infection in my knee and the tendon split from a bone and the doctor couldn't bring the tendon back to the bone because of the infection. So I had no choice but to, the doctor had to replace it, take it out and try a different surgery. And unfortunately, for seven years, I tried every single thing possible to come back. I pushed myself to tears, went through every single surgery. I lost every muscle in my left leg. I couldn't even lift my left leg. About two years later, my first game back after all the rehab, I had 17 points in 20 minutes. And my wife, I had already been married, and my wife came in the car, and she's like, wow, you're back. And I said, you know what? I'm, I'm not. I can't feel my left knee again. And I went all the way back to square one. And I pushed myself for seven years until finally in 2009, I got hurt again. And I called my wife from the locker room and I said, Hashem doesn't want me to play basketball anymore. Like I've done every single thing possible. So a lot of people look at my statistics and say, Tamir was overhyped. Um, I'm actually more proud of the second part of my career than I was the first part of my career because everything was smooth all the way through Talmudical Academy. I was in a great situation and I was healthy. But emotional abuse, physical abuse, injuries beyond belief, coming back from three career-ending injuries, I'm much more proud of that because I took a lot more courage in doing that while everyone was kind of laughing at me and giving up on me, and I never gave up on myself, and I always believed in what Hashem wanted me to do, and I overcame all that. I'm a lot more proud of that than the first part of my career, and it's actually the second part of my career that really allowed me to understand what my purpose is in life and what Hashem wants for me. And instead of me like thinking like what I want to accomplish, I began to learn like what Hashem wants me to accomplish. And I, I only was able to learn that after my injuries. So it ended up being a really big blessing for me. And what is that purpose now as you understand it? The way that I understand it is, yeah, Hashem wanted me to make a Kiddush Hashem on the basketball court and he gave me the abilities and he gave me tremendous abilities. Like I was able to play against the best and I proved that and I won the MVP against the best. And I was able to do that as a proud Jew and I always have those intentions and not play on Shabbos and make a Kiddush Hashem and make a stance for Hashem and the Jewish people in Israel. But ultimately, if I would have kept on playing like that and stayed on that course, yeah, I would have had better statistics 100%. But I wouldn't have the sensitivity or the creativity 
to be who I am today, the, the chesed I'm involved in, the educational issues I'm involved in, the product development that I'm involved in, the book I have coming out, the movie I have coming out, the camps that I run, the thousands and thousands of thousands, probably close to 20,000 kids who I've trained with the utmost sensitivity, care, and bridging cultures, bringing people together, making even a bigger Kiddush Hashem in many ways through basketball. I wouldn't have had the sensitivity. I wouldn't have had the creativity. I, I only learned what struggle was about when I lost the thing that I loved the most, when the doctor said, you're never, ever going to be able to play basketball again. And, and that was the thing that I loved the most in the world. So how can you be sensitive to a kid that might be going through struggles if you didn't lose your own uh, favorite thing in the world? You know, it made me much more sensitive, made me much more creative. It, it made me a better Jew, a better person, a better father, a better husband, everything. Everything I do is because I got hurt. <laughs> and everything I do is because most people think I was a failure or a gimmick, you know? Interesting. So you think like all the fame, maybe and success would have gotten to you and you just wouldn't, like you said, not have been as nice of a person, maybe? Yeah, I don't know if it would have gotten to me. I mean, I was never like an arrogant person, but I, just, I don't think to the extent of understanding struggle and creativity. Look, I've brought three products to market. You know, I've, <laughs> yeah, I would have never been forced to bring out this whole side of me or the sensitivity or I speak all over the world, parenting workshops coaching workshops. Like I specialize in working with kids with struggles, ADD, ADHD, obesity. Like I help all these kids through basketball. I, you know, I would never have been able to do it at the level that I do it at now. I want to get to your products a little bit later, but you just mentioned a book and a movie, which I wasn't aware about. Could you talk us a little bit about this book and movie that's coming out and when yeah, it's coming I think out? For a lot of, I think for a lot of kids, when they find out, I've seen it with my own eyes, when they find out that they have a struggle, like let's say they've been diagnosed with dyslexia. So I'm very dyslexic. I could barely till today read or write or basic arithmetic. Like when you sent me those questions of what you might ask today, there's, I, don't, I can't even read it. I don't even mess with it. But on the other hand, like what gave me my confidence on the court was my dyslexia, was that like I knew my brain sees things that other people don't see. And that was my confidence. That's what Hashem gave me. So within each challenge, there's actually a superpower. So it's a children's book about finding your superpower, even if you've been diagnosed with some type of challenge. Uh, it's to empower young kids. I did it with the PJ Library, um, and it should be coming out very soon, maybe around Rosh Hashanah time, Bezat Hashem. Um, and my movies with uh, the director of Showtime Basketball, Eric Newman, and also Aaron Phillips, who worked for LeBron James for many years. And he's the head of RTG, which is like Slam. I don't know if you know Slam Magazine. It's the biggest basketball magazine in the world. So they have a documentary side. So I'm working with two of the biggest leaders in the industry. And it's it's a lot about bringing out some of these. So it's about your, your journey and also the lessons you learned along the way, in other words? Yeah. And what I'm doing now. Yeah. And basic, same thing. Like how can, you know, I was probably just as hyped as some of the greatest players of all time in high school. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld did a full skit about me on Saturday night live. And, you know, when Michael Jordan's documentary came out, the trailer for his documentary showed magic Johnson, Phil Jackson and Jerry Seinfeld. And I'm looking at my wife and I'm like, okay, I have footage with all of those people too. You know, like it's hard to even imagine like who I was hanging out with what I was experiencing by the time I was 16, 17 years old. So it's like going from that and then bringing out like kind of redefining success, I would say, and uplifting people and empowering people. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about your senior year in high school. Cause like you said, you had to transfer to a seventh day Adventist school. 
that year. And he didn't talk about why, but at least my understanding just on the news reports, which may or may not be true, is that the Orthodox school in Baltimore that you attended didn't like all the attention you were getting and essentially forced you out. And I remember being somewhat horrified at the time since it seemed to me to be a betrayal of what Judaism arguably stands for, which is using and sanctifying the gifts God gave you. People serve Hashem in different ways, and I actually understood that at a very young age, and I'm cool with it. Even if it's not exactly how I serve Hashem, if people have different opinions, that helps them feel closer to Hashem in an authentic way, I'm all in. But the main thing is that I'm still very close with the rabbi of the time. So that's what matters to me is relationships and and Hashem and, and none of that other stuff ever mattered to me, you know? And I, I still had, even when I was at the Christian school, you know, I would leave to get kosher food at lunch, go to kosher restaurants in Silver Spring and near one of the kosher restaurants, which was called Max's, there used to be a Judaica store. The rabbi, Rabbi Lisbon, the Chabad rabbi, ran that Judaica store. And when he saw me during my lunch break, he would turn his sign from open to closed. And he would bring me in the back of his store for 15 minutes and we'd learn a little Tanya because he knew I was coming from the Christian school every day and things like that. And I always felt like I was around people that cared for my neshama, even when I was in, like the people that were really close to me were stayed really close to me. And I always thank him for that. And I'm also still till today very close with the rabbi that was the head of the school at the time. Like I, I'm, I'm all about Hashem and people. I, I don't really get caught up in all this other stuff. <laughs> so you weren't upset that they sort of forced you out? It's just not my thing. Like okay. I feel like everything, I've, everything's Ashkach Pratis and everyone's got their things and I'm cool. I, I, right. I don't like fall into that, that type of stuff. Interesting. Okay. Uh, what was it like spending 12th grade in a Christian school? At first it was like very hard because, you know, you want to graduate with your friends who you love and your teammates, you know, being the only Jewish kid in the entire school and having to walk in and there's, you know, there's Christian prayer before every single class, not only Christian prayer, but like you go to math, there's, you know, and they would ask me to lead prayer. I say, I'm sorry, I can't, I'm Jewish. I'm just going every day with my kippah, my tzitzit hanging out and, you know, I remember the first home game, I was crying. I didn't want to play there. I wanted to go back to Yeshiva because my coach came to support me from the Jewish school. And I was crying on his shoulder before the game. And he said, you can't cry. You got to pick yourself up. Go out there and play well. So I did pick myself up and I went out there and played. And fast forward all these years later, like I'm still very close with many of the people from the Christian community. The principal who I used to study Torah with every Friday and he was able to read Hebrew is coming to Israel next year. And he already texted me to see, say that he wanted to meet with me in Yerushalayim. So uh, it ended up being a really big Kiddush Hashem. Um, I know my mother had a really hard time because people would comment to her saying, how dare you send your son to Christian school and all this. But ultimately, when they saw that I wasn't going to, I didn't play on Shabbos, I think they apologized to my mother. And I think nowadays, probably Christian school is better than going to a secular school. I don't have experience. I think, but. I think everything depends on each person in their own case. And if you're a basketball player, a lot of it has to depend on the coach. That's the main right. thing. Like how bad the coach wants you there. What are the coach's values? Things like that. Right. I understand also when you came to Israel, you were the first Orthodox basketball player in Israel too. Is that true? I believe so. Yeah. Has there been one or two since or no? Still, you're the only one? Or? Um, oh, I think Devon Sheffer became religious. So I would say one or two. I don't really know the Israeli scene as much. I mean, in America, again, people were like, from kids, were excited. Oh, wow, from guys going to be playing basketball. Was that like the same dynamic in Israel also? Yeah, it was a very big deal here, especially back then. 
But the thing with me is, is I kind of like lived in both worlds and made them one world in that you also have American players that are coming over to play in Israel. So you have guys that are trying to get to the NBA or used to be in the NBA. And I knew a lot of those players from playing at NBA camp or Adidas camp, or I played against them in college. And so I got to Israel. On the one hand, I was Jewish and I spoke Hebrew. But on the other hand, I was like, I knew the American players and I was viewed as an American. So I was kind of able to welcome everybody. You know, thank God I got married very young. So I was already able to invite my teammates over for Shabbos and so at least when they came to Israel, they would also be connected or at least know a little bit about Judaism in Israel. And at the same time, put tefillin on, on Fridays, I would bring my tefillin for the Israelis. So it was it was pretty cool to be right in the middle, I guess. Right, right. Um, you currently run a two-week basketball camp every summer in Yerushalayim for boys ages 9 to 16. What's running this camp like and what's your purpose in doing it? On the one hand, I try to empower the kids on and off the court, give them life skills, give them world-class basketball, really build them up. It's for kids who love basketball and speak to them through the language of basketball because they're very passionate about the game. On the other hand, we bring over a lot of NBA guys every summer with an organization called Athletes for Israel. And that way we educate them about Judaism in Israel. And that way we can combat anti-Semitism, racism, and uh, they get to see a different angle of what they hear on the news. So it's really good for our campers because they get to learn from the best players in the world. But on the other hand, it's good for Israel and the Jewish people and uniting people because they get to see a different angle than they hear about and uh, do a lot of cultural diversity work. Basketball is a very holy thing. It can bring people together. So do a lot of interesting things. But ultimately, it's just like a very positive thing and empowering thing and just try to do as much good as possible. You know, Judaism tells us to every physical thing in the world, there's like holiness behind it. So what's the holiness of basketball? The holiness of basketball is uniting people and uplifting people. That's that's really what the game's about. How many, I'm just curious, what percentage of the kids roughly is Orthodox? Oh, uh, I don't know. I never think on those terms ever, ever. It just doesn't say, even cross my head. How many kids? It's like a sprinkling I, of yarmulkes. There's a lot of yarmulkes. Okay, or... There's 55 kids. I don't just... And I'm also really dyslexic and bad with numbers. I would say like <laughs> 35, maybe wear a kippah. Okay, so it's like half almost, but more, yeah. a little more than half. Okay, I'm yeah. just curious. Yeah. yeah, but there's kids that wear it during the day, and then it, there's all different kids. There's a complete background, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, I get it. I get it. Yeah, um, yeah. Four years ago, you ran a Pesach basketball camp along with Amari Stoudemire, who's a people who don't know, who's a six foot ten African-American former New York Nick who amazingly converted to Judaism in 2020. Are you friends with him? And were you at all part of his conversion process? I am friends with him. His kids actually have been to camp, uh, two of his boys. I can't say I was part of his conversion process, but I can say that we've spoken about Parsha and Judaism. And I also have like a line of like tzitzis that I invented for athletes, compression fit tzitzis. And he definitely has worn them a lot. <laughs> But I can't say that I like convinced him or uh, that's not really my style. I talk about Hashem with everybody, but I don't, I'm not like a rabbi or like into converting people. Right. No, I just figured because you probably were like his only contact. Well, yeah, because we you're a basketball player. we've done some cool things together and we've had some cool conversations, but I'm not like one of these. I'm not going to take credit for anything. I don't, it's, that's not my style. Yeah. I'm not, yeah no, I'm I just not, thought maybe, okay, I was wondering maybe like, you know, yeah, we say, know each other and we're. We're friends, I would say right. that. Right, right, right. Okay, you mentioned compression form tzitzis. What's, what's that? Well, when I played professionally, like I wore tzitzis. So they would get destroyed. and um, Destroyed how? Just 
playing so hard, playing at that level, they just weren't conducive for playing professional sports. So I always said, like, when I get done playing, there's all these high performance materials, Under Armour and Nike dry fit and compression fit that would help athletes. And, you know, most people take off their scissors because they get ruined. You know, you're not supposed to ruin something wholly. But I felt like there's all these materials now that are made for it. So why don't we create it? So basically what I did was I created an inner layer that has all the high performance materials, moisture wicking, odor wicking, and... So say that again, moisture what, sorry? Moisture wicking, odor wicking, compression fit, just like a high performance Under Armour shirt, right? UV protection, like something that a serious athlete would wear when they train. But the problem is you're not allowed to make tissues out of those materials because according to our Moshe Feinstein, you need 51% cotton. Okay. So basically what I did is I created an inner layer that compresses the body and all the moisture wicking in an outer layer. It looks and feels like one jersey, but the outer layer has 51% cotton and it's the kosher tzitzis and the tzitzis don't get ruined because the inner layer is taking all the sweat and everything off your body and protecting the tzitzis. And that way you could perform without having to take your tzitzis off. So it's been very popular amongst soldiers, American soldiers, actually, soldiers that were serving in Afghanistan, Jewish soldiers, Israeli soldiers, obviously, in the IDF. And of course, athletes, Jewish athletes. So that, you know, it's been a fun project. And also like it says, like Hashem is saying, go make it for them. Like make it in a way that's conducive. I don't know other any other mitzvah where Hashem is saying, go for it. Be creative. Make it in a way that's going to be conducive. Like vasulahem, go out there and make it for them. Like who's them? It's the athletes that need it, that otherwise would be taking it off. So that's just been one of the projects that I've been involved in. And I did that for Hashem. I felt like Hashem was looking for a way that we could be more athletic without having to sacrifice on our our religious attire. Right. Excuse my ignorance. I have no idea what compression for means in terms of garments. What does that mean? If you look at like NBA players, right, underneath their jersey, they wear like a very, almost like spandex, like a very tight fitting shirt that grabs all the sweat off their body. Uh And then their jersey stays clean and otherwise your jersey will get so heavy and covered in sweat it's hard to perform well like uh-huh, okay interesting so it's like it compresses it compresses to your body okay um but how can you how can you have something compress to your body if it has to be four corners open it doesn't make sense good question you can't do it so that's how i created the inner layer that compresses and then the outer layer that has the four corners got it okay um i believe you also give motivational speeches nowadays and this ties into something you said earlier. Maybe you already have answered it earlier. But is it hard sometimes to give kids a hopeful message about the future when your own future didn't quite turn out the way you had wanted it to? I think the opposite. I think no one wants to hear a story or it's unrelatable to someone that just had great success and no, and no challenges. I think the most motivational thing is when you're re- relatable, when you can relate to a certain struggle or a challenge say the struggles, say what happened, say the setbacks, say everything, and then show how it's still okay. And you could still come out on top and you could even find hidden blessings. I think that's much more relatable than someone who just has it very easy. Interesting. Okay. Um, is that your main message in your speeches or, or what are the main messages? I speak all over the world, different audiences about different topics. I speak a lot to athletes. I speak a lot to parents. I speak a lot to coaches. I speak a lot to businesses and sports entrepreneurship, sports tech. Um, what are like one or two top main themes that you try to to relate some of these audiences? One is my Safta was a Holocaust survivor. I was closer to her than anybody else in the world. She lived in Israel, but she would come to America to visit us. 
And one time after a game in seventh grade, she came to watch me play. I just, all I wanted to do was play well for her, show her how good I was in basketball and show her what Hashem gave me on the court. And I ended up playing terrible. And I was so upset after the game. I was so looking forward to it. And I felt like I disappointed her and I failed the situation. And she came over to me. She survived two camps in the Shoah. And she had the biggest smile on her face and she gave me the biggest hug. And it was kind of like a message for life that like you pick your head up, smile and move forward. And that's kind of been my, you know, so many crazy things have happened to me that I would never expected, but amazing things happen when you pick your head up, smile and move forward. Like my staff taught me. And I give a lot of examples of how very hard challenges ended up being the greatest blessings for me. For example, after the coach assaulted me, I came to Israel. I didn't stay. I would have stayed in college for four years, but I came to Israel. And in my first year, I already met my wife. And that that's, you know, I have five kids. My oldest daughter is going into the army now, you know, Baruch Hashem. And I would have, you know, that is the greatest blessing in my life. I would have never met my wife had I not been assaulted by that coach, you know. So I just have so many examples of that. And they're very relatable to people. And people could relate to whatever struggle or setbacks or loss, seemingly losses that they've ever encountered in her life and then when you pick your head up and smile and move forward a lot of times Hashem will eventually show you that there's even bigger blessings than you could have even imagined what you had in mind for yourself just briefly I think you have three inventions so could you talk a little bit about the other two and and how do these inventions happen you just think of it and then contact somebody who then develops it for you how does that work uh, for me, everything goes from Hashem. Like, if, if I feel like Hashem wants me to do it, I'm going to go for it. Like, I, I felt like Hashem wanted me to create the tzitzis, I went for it. Um, Zone 190, my first invention in the basketball world, was a, an unbelievable training device. Unfortunately, it got stolen from me by a huge sports company, and that was very painful to go through that. And, you know, having been assaulted already <laughs> physically by the coach and then now I felt like I was assaulted mentally because someone stole my invention and the basketball, you know, chokhmah that was behind it. That was very hard for me. I mean, um, I'm assuming I, you had a patent. So what, they went around the patent? How did that work? No, it didn't matter. It didn't, didn't matter. They just, they even emailed me highlighting my patent and just went for it. And they knew that they would, they were just bigger and stronger and, and they just did it. <laughs> and I kind of, at that moment said, I'm never going to invent anything again, but I went back on my own promise and uh, was able to invent the, my new net, which Baruch Hashem is, is doing very well right now. Uh, we signed with Dick Sporting Goods Nationwide. It's changed basketball around the world. So for the audience, could you just briefly describe the net and also Zone 190? I, I looked it up. I know what it is, but they don't. So. Yeah, Zone 190 is a multi-angled pitchback that allows you to catch the ball from game-like angles. Uh, in basketball, you want to be able to catch the ball and be confident everywhere on the court. And traditional pitchbacks are only one-dimensional. So why would I only practice catching the ball at one angle when I could catch it at multiple angles? So I created a frame that was 190 degrees. Um, and then Aviv net is the first ever high performance net. So when you make a shot, it disinfects the ball from bacteria and germs and it dries the ball 11 times more than a standard net. So usually in professional basketball, the ball is very slippery. It comes Everyone sweats on the ball. Our ball is now 11 times drier in the game because of the net. And you could also advertise on the net in game which has changed sports marketing around the world because now companies, major companies want that real estate and they're advertising on the net. So, and now we're nationwide at Dick Sporting Goods. So there's people all over the world buying our net and everything's a continuation. If I wouldn't have learned the mistakes or whatever happened to me as on 190, I would have never been ready for 
uh, ViewNet. And now also with Fabric, you know, I'm literally we're working with like the NBA on a daily basis at the highest levels of basketball. None of this would have happened for me if it wouldn't have been through my setbacks and struggles. So we started off talking about how seemingly my career was overhyped and and uh, gimmicky and all this. But the truth is, I'm actually doing better than ever. I'm happier than ever. Shem's blessed me with an amazing wife and five children. And I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing in Yerushalayim. Like, I feel like the most blessed person in the world. So Interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very blessed. So again, you just like you think of this idea to have this net and then you start working with a company to develop it. How, like, how does that work? Yeah, well, when you're very dyslexic like I am, and I'm extremely dyslexic, so basically your brain is compensating all day long. You can't read something. You want to read it. You can't read it. You want to solve a math problem. You can't. It's just your brain is constantly over-exercised, and it creates these different muscles that most people don't get to use, uh, creative muscles, problem-solving muscles. Like I see things, and I could think of solutions very quickly. So it also spills into the invention place. So I, I think of an invention – if I really believe in it and Hashem wants it and I know it's a difference maker, yeah, I'm going to patent it, prototype it, and bring it to market. Interesting. And but I just had one question about the AvivNet when I was reading about it. So I understand that in the beginning of the game, it's going to be absorbing all this moisture. But two hours into the game, is it still absorbing or is it like, you know, saturated yeah, and starts like, dripping or something? No, the opposite. It, dry, it continues to dry the ball the whole game and it itself is quick dry. So it dries really quickly and then it can perform again what it needs to do. It's very technologically advanced. Thank God I live in Israel. Israel is a world leader in technology and fabrics and yarns. And um, we were able to, to build it here with incredible partners. Interesting. And do you think Israel, um, the NBA is going to pick it up one day? Or is that what you hope at least? I uh, can't can't uh, talk about that. Okay, yet. no problem. But, uh, well, then, well, good luck to you. We hope that it, it does work out. Yeah. All right. Well, it's a real pleasure and honor meeting you Ta-da. over the, the internet. And continue good luck. Hatzlachat to you. Thank you, Batzacha, and warm regards. All right, that does it for us. In the episode description, I will have links to Tamir Goodman's website, as well as to the first page and the picture of that Sports Illustrated article that made such big waves in 1999, as well as to Tamir Goodman's first book, not the one that's coming out soon, the kids' book, but another book he wrote in 2013. I will have a link to that as well. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and have a great day or a great night, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. 